If you would, stand with me for prayer and the reading of God's Word. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do ask for your blessing upon this preaching and upon the hearing. Lord, let what we hear have a saving effect upon us. Let us grow in grace, Lord, as the Word is applied to our hearts. Let us understand the truth of your Word that we might be a strong people, a strong group of believers, Lord, that we would be able to apply what we hear and we would have our faith established, our hope strengthened, and our love increased. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, if you have your Bibles open to 2 Thessalonians, I want to read those first two verses. Hear now the Word of God. Paul and Silvanus and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You may be seated. And may the Lord add His blessing to His Word. Now, beloved, it's been some time since we've been in the the first epistle of Thessalonians, but the second epistle was written out of a need. Paul had gotten word that the church there was beginning to um, suffer under some misguided teaching. And he was writing this second epistle to that church in order to correct their, this misunderstanding. He's writing to correct the misunderstanding. He's writing to straighten out some of the, the doctrine that has sort of been going around because the, the doctrine was beginning to have an ill effect on some of the members there. Some of the members and the expectation of the return of the Lord Jesus Christ understood that Jesus was coming back at any moment. And that's the way they understood it and they were quitting their jobs. They were becoming busybodies in the church. They were becoming um, uh, uh, useless, if you will, in the work of the ministry and becoming a burden on those church members that were laboring and working and ministering and just living out their daily lives. And Paul writes this letter to inform them of this correction, this doctrinal correction, but also to admonish any who did not receive His correction as the will of God. Now that's the background. I mean, that's the basic thrust of the epistle. And as we get into the epistle itself, we're going to be addressing that uh, error and we're going to be addressing those ill effects that that idea had upon the church. And I think there's going to be a connection made. There are even those today that are... Uh, under this influence that Jesus could return at any second and therefore they give up their labor and work. They give up their daily responsibilities and become useless in the scheme of the ministry and the propagation of the gospel. And so we're going to be able to make those connections as we go along in the epistle. Now this morning I do want to address the... Three important gifts to the church. And we find these gifts in these first two verses. There are three important gifts that have been granted to the church. And that's what I want us to focus on this morning. Now we're going to have to, we're going to, have to remind ourselves of the background of the epistle. To appreciate the first gift. We've got to remind ourselves how the gospel came to Thessalonica. How, how did it come about that Paul came to this city 
this very pagan and Roman city, the city that was filled with all kinds of idolatry and false worship. How did it come about that he ends up there preaching the gospel and many believing in Jesus Christ and a church being established there? Now, if we go back in the book of Acts, we're going to see how this came about. If you will, uh, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 15. Acts chapter 15. Now, I'm not going to read these lengthy chapters. I'm going to give you the gist of the chapters, and I want you, if you're interested, to jot these down, and you can go back in your personal study, and read these chapters. And I think you'll be edified if you do. In Acts chapter 15, we have the the first major debate of the church. There was a collection of churches that had come together. This assembly of churches, we might call it a presbytery, and they begin debating the... The truth of how do Gentiles come to faith? Can they just express faith in Jesus Christ and be saved? Or do they need to express faith in Christ and be circumcised as the Jews were circumcised? Now that was the great debate. And of course, after much disputation, after very heated exchanges, the church elders there had come to the consensus, mainly through the influence of the Apostle Paul, that God has accepted the Gentiles into the church, and all that was required of them was a profession of faith in Jesus Christ. Now, they drafted a letter, and that letter was to be circulated among the churches that had been established in order for the brethren, the congregations, or those believers to be edified and built up, mainly those Gentile believers. If you look at the end of chapter 15, notice verse 30. Now, they were sent away. Now, Notice, they were sent away and went down to Antioch, and having gathered the congregation together, they delivered the letter. This letter is what these presbyters had written in order for it to be read among the churches. And when they read it, notice the outcome, they rejoiced because of its encouragement. Judas and Silas, there's Silas, he's mentioned in Thessalonians, Paul and Silvanus, Silas is Silvanus, Judas and Silas, also being prophets themselves, encouraged and strengthened the brethren with a lengthy message. Now, who was Silas? Silas was a preacher. He was a prophet. He was a minister of the gospel. And my favorite thing about verse 32 is the very last part about it. The brethren, uh, he was strengthened with what? A lengthy message. Now you have to appreciate that. These men were preachers of the gospel. They were ministers. They were ordained ministers. And they were sent out by the presbytery to do what? To encourage and strengthen the brothers. Those brothers and sisters. And they were to read this letter... And they were to encourage the church with that truth or that declaration. Now notice, Paul and Barnabas are sent out by the church in Antioch. Antioch being a very influential, wealthy church. A very large church. A very central an important church in the scheme of the first century or in the scheme of all that's going on. And it was a very important and powerful church. And so here you have all these churches collecting and coming together in Antioch to send out these ministers and to send out Paul and Barnabas. Now, there's a point to all of this. Paul and Barnabas get into an argument Now this is the second missionary journey. They get into an argument. Barnabas wants to take his nephew, John Mark. Paul doesn't want John Mark to go. 
because of John Mark leaving them in a bind in their first missionary journey. And so Paul and Barnabas, the Scriptures tell us, have a fallen out. And Barnabas takes his nephew, John Mark, and they go in one direction. And Paul takes Silas, Silvanus. And now that's where we're coming in Thessalonica. So Paul and Silas, who is Silvanus, begin to go out and preach the gospel. And the first thing I want you to recognize is, number one, this is not some arbitrary wandering of, of somebody who wants to be a preacher preaching the gospel. Now that goes back to the very first eminent and important gift of the church, and that is the ministers of the gospel. The church in Thessalonica had been established because of the faithfulness of the church to recognize one of its duties is to propagate the gospel, to disciple the world, to evangelize the world. That's the, one of the functions of, this, of the church of Jesus Christ. Spread the gospel. That's one of our functions. Now we can only do so much as a very small body, but what we are to do is to pray. We are to participate in that. We can participate in prayer. We can participate in giving. It doesn't matter. It doesn't have to be sizable gifts. Now I'm going to show you how this works out as we go along because the blessing and the gift of this blessing that the Thessalonican church ought to be thankful for is that role of ministers of the gospel being sent out by the church in order to establish, the, uh, in order to preach the gospel and establish the church in truth. Continue with me in Acts. Notice how Paul and Silas go down into Macedonia and we see there the conversion accounts of Lydia and the Philippian jailer. I'm not going to read the whole thing. I'm just kind of taking you along the way of how they got to Thessalonica. They go to Macedonia and, and to Philippi and they preach the gospel there. Paul, in his custom, goes into the synagogues where there were Jews and what we call proselyte Greeks. Greeks that had recognized that uh, the God of the Jews was the living and true God. They had put away their idolatry and embracing the living and true God. Paul goes into their midst and he preaches the gospel. And many there are converted and believe in Jesus Christ as the Messiah. And there are others that are there that hate Paul for it. And they're jealous. They're envious of Paul. They don't like Paul getting all this recognition. Now it wasn't just Paul preaching the gospel. It was Silas too. And they're thrown in jail. There's a big uproar. And these jealous Jews go and stir up the city against Paul and Silas. And they're thrown in jail. They're beaten. They're thrown in jail. And that's the, the miracle happens there. They're in, in the jail. And at midnight, they're singing praises and hymns to God. Locked up in the deepest, darkest part of the prison. That's where they kept the most notorious of all the prisoners. In the very bottom of the prison, in the cellar, in the basement. Chained to one another and probably chained to the wall. And that's where the angel of the Lord comes and breaks them out. We all know the story, don't we? The Philippian jailer goes and takes his sword. He's going to kill himself. Paul cries out, don't do it. Don't do it. For what you have witnessed is the power of Almighty God. Now you have to understand there's a context to that. It wasn't that the Philippian jailer just come out of nowhere and was going to kill himself. And here's Paul cry out to him and decides to listen to him. No. What had Paul and Silas been doing all night? They had been preaching in their praise. What were they singing? What were they singing? They were singing the Old Testament Psalms. They were singing the Old Testament doctrines and truths of Jesus being the, 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 the prince of peace and the, the king of the world and, and that God was going to bless and save the world through His blessed Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. They'd been preaching, if you will, the gospel in their singing. And so he had been listening to this and now he sees the evidence of this powerful gospel God going in and busting out the apostles. Well, we know the outcome, right? He takes them to his home. And the jailer begins to minister to Paul and Silas. Now you have to understand something. Now they had just been beaten. They had just been whipped. 
Now, they didn't whip them and clean them up and bandage them up and put them in prison. They just beat them and threw them in prison. You got dirt and all kinds of stuff. And the, the jailer has mercy on them and he takes them into his house and the jailer begins to wipe away the blood, the dried blood and the dirt from their wounds. And the Bible tells us the amazing story of the Philippian jailer believing in Jesus Christ and being baptized along with his whole household. But Paul, um, Paul has many enemies. He and Silas are run out of town and, and they come to this place called Thessalonica and we're here at chapter 17. Notice in chapter 17, verse 2, according to Paul's custom, he went in for three Sabbaths. Notice what Paul did. He reasoned with them. He reasoned. What, did he, what is the word reason? The word reason means to argue. He debated with them from the Word of God. Verse 3, he explained. He was explaining. What does that mean? What does it mean to explain? He was opening up the Word. He was showing them how the parts fit together. He was showing them how to connect the dots. Thirdly, he was giving evidence in verse 3. Giving evidence. He was proving. He was proving it. He was answering their questions, if you will. All of their rebuttals, Paul was answering their questions that the Christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this Jesus whom I proclaim I'm proclaiming to you is the Christ notice what he did he preached and he preached with authority the bible tells us he did this with 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 uh silence uh, Silas's presence there and notice verse 3 uh, verse 4 and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas along with a large number of God-fearing Greeks and a number of leading women but the Jews became jealous and taking along wicked men from the marketplace formed a mob and set the city in an uproar attacking the house of Jake and Jason that they were seeking to bring them about now I'll stop there so what do we see we see what do we see? The church sends out ministers. These ministers go under the authority of Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. They go bearing authority. And then that authority comes power. And we see that in the, in the, the, the um, progression of the gospel there in the life of Paul and Silas. And we come to Thessalonica, but what do we have? We have the enemies of the gospel. We have the enemies of the gospel. And it's, it's in this that Paul begins to write. Uh, and these enemies go after Paul. They want to kill him. They want to do him harm. And they want to do anyone else harm that believes Paul's message. Anyone that believes what the apostle Paul and, and the prophet Silas are teaching and preaching, anybody who accepts their doctrine and truth, they too are become the focus of this hatred, this animosity, and this envy. And they are attacked, and they're whipped, and they are, they are isolated, if you will, made spectacles of. And now that's the backdrop of all that's going on in Thessalonica. And that's why Paul commends them the way he does. And, and, and when he says, listen, you suffered, you suffered for the name of Christ. And we commend you for it. You didn't fall away. You didn't become scared and frightened when we preached the gospel to you. And you began to suffer in, in the same way that we had been suffering for the gospel. Now, brothers and sisters, what I want to point out to you is the blessings of ministers that are willing to endure great hardship and persecution for the name of Christ and the, and the birth of the, of the church and the evangelizing of the nations. That's a blessing. It's a gift. These ministers who come and, and, and the reality of, of peril... In the reality of persecution. Notice when Paul writes in 1 Thessalonians, he said, You began to emulate us. Where did the believers at Thessalonica learn to be faithful? Well, they were watching Paul and Silas, they were watching their ministers. They heard the stories, they heard the testimony. 
of how God had preserved them and kept them and and brought them along the way. And now they are there preaching the gospel to them. And they're they're seeing the gospel expand and grow. People believing and accepting Jesus Christ as Savior. Repenting of their sins. Seeing a church established. And Paul says, y'all begin to, to emulate us. And, and you faced much persecution. And you, you did all of this in the face of many fierce enemies. Now, brothers and sisters, we do need ministers of the gospel that are bold, courageous. That don't have... Ministers that have God's glory... As their goal. And that's why Paul could do all this. That's why Silas could do this. That's why Timothy could do this. These were all ministers of the gospel. These were all all men that had been set apart by the church, being used greatly to have the church founded and established. These men were were given the the responsibility of taking the Word of God and teaching it and preaching it, proclaiming it, administering it. Exercising discipline. Teaching the church how to sing songs of truth and praise to God. All from the the Word of God. And they could listen to their testimonies. They could understand, brothers and sisters, how these men were such great gifts and blessings to the church. I can tell you the truth, brothers and sisters. Most of the men we look up to, or should look up to, are those men that have suffered greatly for the name of the gospel. Yeah. I mean, just go and refamiliarize yourself with the Fox's Book of Martyrs. And what are we going to read there? We're going to read testimony after testimony of ministers, uh, elders, congregation, uh, congregants, men and women who suffered for the glory of Jesus Christ, suffered for His name, suffered for the uh, practice of true worship. I want you to notice some of the names that are given to these ministers in the Word of God. They are called messengers, angels. Revelation 1-3 through calls these ministers of the Gospels the angels of the Lord. Now what's an angel? The word angel just means messenger. These were angels if you will, coming and bearing a message. What is the message? The message is that one is one of good news. You can repent of your sins and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. They're called ambassadors. Ambassadors. Why? Because they have been given, they have been delegated authority in the name of Jesus Christ. They come as ambassadors for the Lord Jesus That's the whole, that's everything, or that's the reason Paul could say, when we came to you, you did not receive us as men, but as men sent from God. You didn't receive our message as the message of mere men. You received our message as for what it was, a message from God. Ambassadors, we come. What is an ambassador? We know when we send an ambassador to another country, they come bearing the authority and the, uh, the, the, the ability to speak in the name of the country that sends them. These men were ambassadors of Jesus Christ. They're called evangelists. They go and establish churches in places that there are no churches. Places where there's rank idolatry and paganism. Or, or in our case, maybe even today, churches that have become what? No churches. Because of the serious compromise of the gospel. We call, you know, look at the effect that liberalism has had upon the visible church. You know, you can all you you know you come and profess to be a Christian, but you don't have to believe in the virgin birth. You don't have to believe in Jesus Christ. You don't have to believe that the Word of God is the Word of God. It's just a book filled of some good principles, and you can still call yourself a Christian, but not in good conscience. 
Now, these men were evangelists. They were to go to establish true churches. Notice what Paul says in Thessalonians here. He says, Grace to you or to the church of Thessalonians in God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. They're preachers. They expound the Word of God. They're teachers. They teach a system of doctrine. They're called stewards over the mysteries of God. The stewards over baptism and the Lord's Supper. Brothers and sisters, I'm here to tell you that this gift of, of ministers is something to be thankful for. It is something to praise God for. It's something to, in, our, in our prayers to thank God for faithful men and ministers who have preach the gospel and establish churches and, and seek to see the church grow in grace even in the face of much persecution. Notice in verse 1 it says, to the church. See, the ministers are not given to the world. They're given to the church. That church there, that word is called the ecclesia. Those who have been called out. Called out. Those who have been separated from the world now have been brought near to God. To them have been given these ministers. Notice Paul and Silvanus and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God. Notice this church is not some human institution, is it? It's in God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. They are the originators. Jesus Christ has been established as the head of the church. And what's the church's role? What's the role of these ministers? It's not to do their own will. It's not to do the will of the 51%. It's to do the will of God, Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church. That's their goal. That's their role. And you should never select, vote for, or desire any teaching elder that has their own interests in mind and heart. But only those who are willing, even in the face of great danger, to do the will of God. Desire that. Teach your children that. It's not the guy that's the most charismatic. It's not the loudest. He's not the loudest preacher. He's not the longest preaching preacher, shortest preaching preacher. He's the one who wants to do the will of God. Notice in verse 2, we see two other gifts that we ought to be mindful of and, and very thankful for. And that's the ministry. The ministry. Look at verse 2. Notice what Paul writes. He says, grace to you. And peace from God, the Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what is this grace? Now, we understand that, you know, when we talk about grace most of the time, what do we think about? We think about salvation, don't we? We think about the God's favor, um, uh, unmerited by us, rightly so. And it's, it's God's grace. It's God's graciousness toward us to offer us the gospel to give us faith and repentance, the gift of faith and repentance, and to regenerate us and, and, and to make us alive when we were dead. And we think about grace. But there's, that's one way to think about it, and that is a very important way. But that's not what Paul means here. What Paul means here is the ministry. The ministry. To the ministry. What's been given to the church? The ministry. The ministry of what? Grace and graces. Let me give you an example. Go back to, um, or go back, if you will, to Philippians. Now, Philippians is a very, I think, an important epistle in light of the Thessalonians because what we know when we read Thessalonians 1 and 2 is that Paul and Silas and Timothy, while they were there, had to um, provide for themselves. Remember, the church was in its infant stages. Um, Paul didn't want to be a financial burden upon the church as they were getting on their feet. Paul says, I could have. I could have demanded 
uh, payment, but I didn't. I labored night and day to see you established in the faith. But where did Paul get his provisions and sustenance from? Not solely from his ministry or from his labor outside the church. What we know is that the church in Philippi sent much financial aid to Paul and Silas as they were laboring to establish the church. Now notice, um, look there with me. Uh, Let's see if I can find it here. Okay, look at verse 7. For it is only right for me to feel this way about you all because I have you in my heart. Since both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, you all are partakers of grace with me. Notice how Paul uses the term grace. What are they partakers of? His ministry. The ministry is a ministry of grace. Why is it a ministry of grace? Because it's a ministry of handling grace. It's the ministry of handling spiritual things. It's the the mind and will of God coming to earth, being applied to those who believe and trust and rest in Him. It's a ministry of grace. And Paul says, you had become partakers with me. How did they have become partakers with Him? Not only in their praying, but in their giving. In their giving. They were willing to give to the apostle in order to relieve his circumstances so that he could focus on preaching the gospel. Um, Look with me, if you will, at chapter 4. And you're going to see this a little clearer. Verse 10, But I rejoiced greatly... That now at last you have revived your concern for me. Indeed, you were concerned before, but lacked the opportunity. Not that I speak from want, for I've learned to be content in whatever circumstance I am. I know how to get along in humble means. I also know how to live in prosperity. And in in any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of being filled and growing hungry, both of having abundance and suffering need. I can do all things through Him who strengthens me. Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. You yourselves also know, Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I left Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. I'm going to stop there. So you can see what Paul is doing. Paul says, oh, you were stewards with me or you were helpers with me in God's grace. In what? God's ministry. That as the church had, one of the church's functions is to do what? To propagate and spread the gospel. This church, after believing in Jesus Christ, began to participate in that ministry by giving to the Apostle Paul in order to alleviate him so he could focus on the preaching of the gospel, the defense of the gospel, and seeing the churches become more faithful and established. I hope you can see that there. But what else are we talking about? We're talking about the ministry. And when we talk about the ministry, what comes to mind or what should come to mind? Well, first of all, beloved, it ought to come to mind that what, we are, what should come to mind is what we find in the Word of God as it concerns the church. And there are at least nine things that I think should come to mind. I'm going to give them to you. I'm not going to expound on all of them. I think the majority of them are going to be self-explanatory. But I think they will resonate with you. Now, the first grace that we participate in as church members is worship. What are we called out to do? We're called out of the world. What do we do? We once, When we were in the world, what do we do? We served the world, right? We were idolaters, weren't we? We served false philosophies. We served philosophies of men, not of God. We served the lie. We lived in darkness. Now think about all the ways the scriptures explain our pre-conversion. We lived in darkness. We groped in darkness, Paul says. We believed lies. We didn't know the truth. 
We hated the truth. We despised the truth. We served idols. We served ourselves. We worshipped ourselves. We worshipped this world. We worshipped money. All of these things. But now what? We've been separated from that to do what? To worship God. You've been called to worship God. You've been called to worship God. I want you to know something. And I want you to be convicted. What we're doing here is no small thing. This is more important than everything else in your life. Because I can tell you right now, being a college student or uh, any labor, worker, whatever the case may be, you're not going to be nearly as good as you can be in any of those if you do this poorly. I mean that. I do. There's so many Christians that would not dare miss work. But they will miss worship at the drop of a hat. For the smallest things. This must be a priority. Because this is one of those distinguishing marks of the church. If we as God's people, those who profess His name, if we do not take our worship and adoration corporately, seriously, how can we expect the world to take God seriously? How can we expect the world to love and adore a God when the church won't even do it? When the church can hardly gather to do it? When all that we are interested in is gathering to hear, hear niceties that have nothing to do about Scripture. Nothing. Prayer. Prayer. Prayer is a part of worship. What do we see worshiping people do in Scripture? We see them praying. We see them calling upon God. We see them, we see, look, we just spent a whole series on prayer. We, we're in prayer. What do we do? We adore God. We, we, we recite back to Him His, magne, His, His majesty, His glory. We call for Him to strengthen us, to aid us in bringing that glory to earth, don't we? We call upon Him to forgive us of our sins. We call upon Him to make us gracious that we would be loving and forgiving of others. We call upon Him to protect us from the evil one. And if we so stumble and fall into temptation, that He would deliver. We pray. We are a praying people. I have heard it said multiple times from many ministers. Many ministers. This is not for exaggeration purposes. This is not to put some exclamation mark upon this point. It is the truth, I tell you. And that is they can hardly get people, God's people, to come back to church for prayer meeting. Nobody wants to pray anymore. Because they don't see it as important. You know why? I believe it's a sign of it. It's my opinion. Because they learn to trust themselves more than God. See, people that pray trust in God. I can't trust myself. When we pray, we are doing what? We are humbling ourselves. We are acknowledging our deficiencies and weaknesses. And we are acknowledging that He is our rock and strength and strong power. Prayer. Preaching. The Word of God has to be a central focus in the church. That's when Paul talked about grace to you. What, did, what was Paul's ministry? He said, oh, how I preached the Word of God to you. And you embraced it as, as, as for what it really was. It's the Word of God. You didn't, you didn't say, well, that's just the pastor's opinion. No, that's the apostle's opinion. But I think I'll believe something completely contrary to that. They didn't do that. They demonstrated the genuineness of their faith and conversion by realizing that the message from the Word of God is to proceed for what it really is, the Word of God. That's why Paul could say in the first epistle to the Thessalonians, he said, listen, if you reject me, you're not rejecting me. If you reject my teaching, chapter 4, Right after he gets through talking about sexual immorality, he says, you're not rejecting me. You're rejecting the teaching of the Holy Spirit. When, when, listen, beloved. When, when, when the church rejects the teaching of Scripture, when they fail to do what God commands them to do, 
when they fail to keep up all of these ordinances that they're to keep up as the visible church of Christ, they've left Christ. They've left Him. You're talking about the preaching of the Word, the reading of the Word, the, rec- the recitation of the Word, catechisms and such. Sacraments of the Lord's Supper and baptism. These things aren't to be taken lightly. Baptism is important. It's, it's, an, it's a mark of those who have believed and trusted in Jesus Christ and their children. The Lord's Supper. We come to take the Lord's Supper to eat and drink the body and blood of Jesus Christ. To offer up to Him what? Ourselves as living sacrifices. That's not for the world. That's the church to do these things. Praise and thanksgiving. Praise and thanksgiving. Throughout this letter, what does Paul do? He thanks God for them. Look at verse 3. We ought always, notice the emphasis, we ought. It's necessary. Paul says, you guys have been such examples. I must always give thanks to God for you, brethren. And it's notice the other strength. It's only fitting. It's proper because of your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each one of you toward the, uh, another grows even greater. Paul says, listen, because of your example and, and faith and encouragement and love because of what God is doing in your midst and your obedience to God, I must give God thanks. And I must, I must praise Him for you. We need to be doing that as well. Praise and thanksgiving is a vital element and ordinance of the true church of Jesus Christ. We must learn how to, and not listen, we must learn how to praise God in a way that's appropriate to Him. Not just in anything we want to sing. But in those songs, hymn and praise songs that are fitting, fitting and appropriate and honoring. That is, look, there's, there's praise songs I listen to that I would never sing in worship. Never. Never. Because I don't believe them to be appropriate for corporate worship of God and His people. Doesn't mean I can't enjoy them. It doesn't mean I can't be entertained by them. It doesn't mean that, that, that they're terrible. It's not appropriate. Catechizing. Instructing. You know what? It is the church's job to teach the people of the church a system of doctrine. A whole system of teaching, not some isolated random ideas here and there, but a whole system of doctrine so that we can what? So that we can live appropriately before the face of our God. Instruction in the whole system of truth, the whole counsel of God's Word. And then lastly, brothers and sisters, or two more quickly, discipline, Notice in 2 Thessalonians, go to the very end of the book, chapter 3. Look at verse 14. Discipline is a vital element and ordinance of the visible church. Notice what Paul says here. He's exercising his ministerial authority and he says, If anyone does not obey my instruction, is that what he says? He doesn't say that, does he? Our instruction. See, Paul's including himself with all the ministerial body. He says, these are the things we have been sent to teach you and we've instructed you. If you do not obey our instruction. That is, Paul's like, this is not my opinion. This is the teaching of the church of Jesus Christ. In order for you to be a Christian, you need to embrace this. Notice what he says. If anyone does not obey our instruction in this letter... Take special note of that person and do not associate with him so that he will be put to shame. Now that's the first line of discipline and admonition. Do you know what the word means? It means to mark them out, recognize them. You're not doing what Christ told you to do. And you hear, well, that, I, here's what I hear. Well, that's, 
not my conscience. Can't bind my conscience. And brothers and sisters, the truth of God in Scripture does bind consciences. Make no mistake about it. Our consciences come in this world defiled and polluted and corrupt. They need to be trained. They need to be regenerated. They need to be exercised. They need to be taught. And so we need to understand something. When, when a man comes or a woman or a family comes into the church and they're not willing to do what the scriptures teach, they are dangerous. They're dangerous. And they will pollute. They are polluting and defiling the honor and glory of Jesus Christ in the church. And they are hindering the expansion of the gospel into the world. Lastly, blessing. Blessing. It is the job of the minister and part of the grace, the ministry to the church is what? For the, there to be a blessing pronounced on the people. We see this throughout Scripture. What do we see God's people do? We see God's ministers or God's prophets blessing the people. Number seven. Moses blessed the people. God's prophets blessing the people. What do we see the Paul doing? Paul writing doxologies and blessing the people in his writing. Brothers and sisters, I don't belong to the world. It belongs to the church. And these are real blessings. When you sit there and you hear the minister of the gospel pronounce a blessing, how often has your mind been somewhere else? How indifferent, how often have you been indifferent to it? How often have you heard it and it's just become words with no meaning? Brothers and sisters, these are gifts, grace gifts to the church. These are the ways that God hugs and kisses you every Sunday. That you would receive through the minister of the gospel, those who have been ordained by the laying on of hands, set apart and gifted by the Holy Spirit to do what? Pronounce upon you a blessing. It's real. It's real. And it has a major impact upon your sanctification. Which brings us to the third gift, peace. Peace. What is this peace? Well, this peace is more than just that tranquility or rest we receive from God in justification. That is, it's through being justified that we have peace with God our Father. Romans 5. Romans 5. I think what Paul is saying here, that is, to you have been given the ministry, the grace. Notice what else he goes on to say. Grace to you and peace from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Peace here, brothers and sisters, is the outworking of all of those graces I've already described to you. Peace. When you joined, when you joined this church and... There are other churches that have these same vows. What's one of the vows? One of the vows is to what? Study the peace and the purity of the church. To study its peace and purity. It's peace. That is, oh, may this peace to you come from God as you what? As you give yourself over to this ministry of grace as you submit to it as you are thankful for it as you dedicate yourself to it as you lay yourself down as living sacrifices what is going to come from God? Peace for your soul peace for your conscience to obey God brings peace peace among the brethren if we are all like-minded in our striving to see Jesus honored, the Word of God preached, the nations discipled and evangelized, guess what? We're going to have peace with one another. But what happens when one of us goes astray? What happens when, when one of us decides these things aren't important? What happens when one of us begins to give more to other things than the ministry? Then there begins to be a divide. See, how can a church walk together? In peace if they're not agreed. Hmm? How? 
How can a husband and wife serve the Lord Jesus Christ if they're not in agreement? Right? How can families do that? How can churches do that? Peace is a gift that we ought to be thankful for. We want it. We do desire peace. Make no mistake about it. We want peace. But they didn't have the kind of peace that I don't want. There was a there are some people that believe they have peace when they compromise the truth in order to live at peace with people. We're not talking about the we're not talking about giving up the gospel. We're not talking about giving up the truth. I mean, look, I see this in, in marriages. I want to live in peace with him. And if I, if I, just get, if I, if I go to press the, the rights of a hu- Jesus Christ upon my husband, he's going to fight. He's going to, I want peace. Same thing with a man. I want to live at peace with her, which means I've got to leave her alone. I want peace with my children. I'm going to leave them alone. You know, they had all kinds of persecution. They had people persecuting them, people talking about them, people, you know, attacking them. There was all kinds of difficulty going on in their lives. And what does Paul say? Grace and peace to you from God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You want peace? Serve the Lord. How do you serve the Lord? In this ministry of grace and all these things I've already talked about. That's how you have peace. That's how you quiet your conscience. That's how you live at peace with other God-fearing believers. Because brothers and sisters, truth and error are never going to mix. They're never going to work. Light, what does light have in common with darkness? What does truth have in common with lies? What does the, the, the kingdom of God have in common with the kingdom of Satan? Nothing. They're incompatible. You want this peace. This peace is a gift and a blessing to the church. To the church. And these are the, one of the reasons we can go out into the world and preach peace. Come to Jesus Christ. and He can give you peace. We can't quiet our own souls. Only God can do it. Brothers and sisters, I've laid before you three gifts. Ministers. The ministry and peace. How you respond to these will be indicative to whether or not you have peace. The more you conform to what the Word of God says about these things, the greater peace you will have and the greater enjoyment you will have as a Christian. Let's pray.